Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's take our Bibles in hand and turn to the Old Testament book of Joshua. Book of Joshua. Last Sunday morning we were reintroduced to this great man of God in chapter 1. You remember that Moses had died and the mantle of leadership fell to Joshua to lead the Hebrew children into the promised land. But before that happened, some very large and powerful obstacles laid in the way. Some of those were human obstacles. The human obstacles were the seven wicked and powerful nations that that occupied the land. Uh, They were not going to volunteer to move out so that the Hebrews could move in. But before they encountered their enemies on the field of battle, they had to get across the swollen floodwaters of the Jordan River. They had traveled south of the Dead Sea and turned north into the present day nation of Jordan and now they were poised to cross westward into what is now present day Israel. So we come today to our text, Joshua chapter 3, I'll read all 17 verses of the third chapter of Joshua. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about two thousand cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here, and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess them before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off And the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those which were flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. 
And the priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of this, his word. Now you remember that it had been 40 years since the Israelites left Egypt, headed for the promised land. Almost everyone who remembered Egypt had died and a new generation had been born during this wilderness period. And that route that they traveled was a circuitous one. Remember they left the land of Goshen in Egypt because uh, God had sent Joseph we saw last week to prepare the way. Even using the wickedness of his brothers to carry out his eternal redemptive plan. And when they showed up the Pharaoh gave them some very choice land there in Egypt that was good for growing livestock called the land of Goshen. And there they began to multiply and prosper. And they multiplied and prospered so much that the Egyptian people began to fear that there were more Hebrews than there were Egyptians. And so they put them under hard labor and eventually into slavery. And their prayer came up to the Lord for deliverance. And He sent Moses. And through Moses He led them out of Egypt towards the Promised Land. But first they had to cross the Red Sea. And they proceeded down the western side of the Sinai Peninsula to the southernmost point wherein is Mount Sinai where Moses received from the Lord the Ten Commandments. And from there they began to travel north towards the wilderness of Paran. And eventually they went south of the Dead Sea traveling westward and then up the eastern shore of the Jordan River. And now they're ready to cross east again across the Jordan River north of the Dead Sea, south of the Sea of Galilee at a place that is called Gilgal. Now when we were studying the Gospel of Luke, we remarked that much of the action of the first eight chapters of Luke takes place in and around the Sea of Galilee. And you remember that the Sea of Galilee is top, topographically a bowl. And the Jordan River, which begins way up north on Mount Hermon from the melting snow there, trickles down until it comes together in a river and empties into that topographical bowl that we call the Sea of Galilee. And then that bowl spills out on the other side and continues downward, not only moving south, but moving lower as far as altitude until it's, uh, most of it really is below sea level. The Jordan River travels about 150 miles from its source. It runs along a portion of the Great Rift Valley that you read about in geography. Much of it, as I said, is below sea level. It, it empties eventually into the Dead Sea where it evaporates and that process starts all over again. Today the Jordan River is a tourist attraction and has become highly polluted. But at one time it was a sparkling wonderful river and every year it overflowed its banks and deposited incredibly rich soil on either side and that became a very fertile flood plain good for growing crops. In fact, when the spies went in to spy out the land, they all came back with a report that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. That is, it was incredibly fertile. They brought back these representative grapes that were larger than any they'd ever seen down in Egypt. The Jordan River has great historical significance biblically. It was the Jordan River that the prophet Elisha instructed Naaman, who was a leper, to dip himself in seven times so that he would be cleansed. It was that same river that Elisha calls the axe head to, flow, to, to float. It was the Jordan River that John the Baptist baptized the Lord Jesus Christ in. And, and the term Jordan River has come to mean in our own English vernacular 
a new beginning or, or freedom. But that day, here in Joshua chapter 3, the Jordan River was anything but a symbol of freedom. It was an obstacle between them and God's promises. So there are four truths from these 17 verses that I want to, to lead to today. Number one is God's marching orders. In verses 1 through 4, we see God's marching orders. Now, we're not told explicitly that God told Joshua to say this, but we saw last week in chapter 1 that God chose Joshua to be the vehicle, the means, and the mouthpiece for him to carry about his eternal redemptive plan. So we can assume Joshua is passing on these instructions from the Lord. Verse 1, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim, came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. Now they get there, and it's just another shot to the stomach. Seems like every time they start making some progress, something happens. And here they find the river overflowing its banks with no bridge, seeming like a, an impossible obstacle. Verse 2, at the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp. They commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. You remember the ark of the covenant was that uh, golden box that the Lord had given instructions to build. It had two statues of angels facing one another with their wings touching each other. And it was a symbolic presence of God in the camp. In it they put the Ten Commandments. They had to use long wooden poles. They couldn't even touch the ark because it, it was too holy. And now Joshua is telling the people, when you see the Levitical priest carrying that ark, break camp. It's time to get on the move. These are their marching orders. And then verse 4 we find a very famous verse. However, there shall be a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Now there's been a lot of, in my opinion, overly dramatic preaching that centers around that phrase, you've not passed this way before. It makes for some entertaining preaching, if not for good exegesis. But the truth is what he was saying is, follow the presence of the Lord. Go where He goes and you'll be safe. This is something new. There, there's no longer the walking in circles in the wilderness. That generation is dead. Now it's time to move out and, and go into the promised land. We have our marching orders today, don't we, church? Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples of all nations. We call it the Great Commission. We, we claim to be an Acts 1-8 church here. And Jesus gave marching orders to His apostles shortly before He ascended out of their sight on the Mount of Olives. He says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And just as the Israelites had come to depend upon the presence of God represented in that ark, every true believer is dependent upon the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to lead us. The Bible says that He leads us to all truth. So those are their marching orders. Follow the Lord. Secondly, in verse 5 and 6, we see God's mandate. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. This is God's mandate. A mandate is simply an official order or a commission. And God's commission and order to the people is to consecrate yourselves. 
To consecrate means to set yourself apart for God's service. That is to separate yourself from sin and the distractions of the world. Consecration in the Old Testament was often accompanied by ceremonial bathing and the putting on of a fresh set of clothes. You remember that King David did that when he recognized his own sin of adultery. When he finally confessed his sin to the Lord, he bathed and he put on a fresh suit of clothing, symbolic of a fresh and a new start. Well, again, we have a mandate today living in the New Testament age. Scripture says we're to be holy as He is holy. That is, we are to separate ourselves from sin and to keep on separating ourselves from sin through the process of sanctification. Because after all, what it means to be saved is that our sins have been washed away, right? As the, the, the hymn writer says, we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. We have been regenerated. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. It's not just that we have reformed our ways. It's that the Lord has made us something absolutely new. But even though that we're born again, we know that we get the dust and the dirt of the world on us. We continue to sin even though we now hate our sin. That's why Jesus gave the great example there the night of His arrest when He took up the hem of His robe and tied it up and cinched it and got down on His hands and knees with a basin of water and a towel and began to wash the disciples' feet to show them their need of continued confession and renewed fellowship with Him. But that is God's mandate. Consecrate yourselves. And then He says, once you've separated yourself from sin, get a front row seat because I'm about to do some magnificent things. Many of us here in this room have been praying for the Lord to do a great work in this city. We've been praying for revival. We did so just a few minutes ago. But don't ever get the idea that we can pray in earnest for revival when we continue to entertain our own sins. When we live in a state of unconfessed sins, when we make peace with our pet sins, we can't expect the Lord to do great things among us. And so he says, consecrate yourselves. Set those things aside and then watch what the Lord will do. Well, that's God's marching orders and God's mandate. In verse 7 though, as we said last week, God has an eternal redemptive plan and nothing will stall it or stop it. But God in His sovereignty and in His grace has chosen to use people, men and women like us, to accomplish His will. And such is the case here in verse 7. Look at it. Now the Lord said to Joshua, this day... I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. Joshua was God's man for the moment. Now, God had used his predecessor, Moses, as an unlikely choice. And God often uses unlikely choices to glorify himself. Now, think about it. Moses was chosen by God to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, Moses was raised as an Egyptian in a royal household. But he was a murderer. He was a fugitive from justice. We're told that he had speech problems. And yet God chose him to glorify himself. God is still in the business of choosing unlikely people to glorify himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you might want to turn there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26, the Apostle Paul is writing to first century believers in a city that was known for its wickedness. And God in His sovereignty had chosen to bring salvation to the city of Corinth 
and to draw out of that wicked city this little group of Christians to start the first church there. And perhaps they had a tendency or a temptation to think they were special or different or that God had chosen an all-star team. And I'm here to tell you that God does not choose all-star teams to accomplish His will. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says to the first century church, For consider your calling, brothers, he's writing to Christians, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised things God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Now this is a very humbling thing Paul is saying for them to do. And I'm taking it, this is being read publicly in a congregational setting. And he says, take a look around you, church. There's not many here who are super intelligent. There's not many here who come from noble ancestry. There's not many here who are in Mensa Club. He, he doesn't depend upon man's intellect. He doesn't depend on political persuasion. He doesn't depend upon an all-star team to accomplish His will. He chooses who He wills so that He will receive the glory. And such is the case with Moses, and such is the case with Joshua. Now we might have thought Moses is more likely candidate because he was raised in a, in a powerful political family. He, he knows how the process works. Well, guess what? Joshua was born a slave down there in Egypt. But what Joshua needs to hear from the Lord is that the same God who led Moses is going to be leading him. Because Joshua had an unenviable task of following in the footsteps of a legend. Who, who was the, the boss before you, Joshua? Uh, Moses. The guy that wrote the first five books of the Bible. The guy that held out his staff and the Red Sea parted. Same Moses who went up on the mountain and talked with the Lord and brought down the Ten Commandments. Yeah, that, that Moses. It certainly would have been a daunting task and he certainly felt inadequate for the task. And just as an aside, if you're a Christian here today and you're called to serve the Lord in a specific way and you feel inadequate for the task, good. If you ever stop feeling adequate for the task, get out of it. Because none of us are adequate for the task of representing the Lord were it not for His indwelling Spirit. When you feel like you don't need the Lord or you've got this, get down on your knees. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Joshua knew this task was too great for he. And yet the Lord came to him and gave him a great word of comfort. He says, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Did you notice who the common denominator is? As you read the Bible, as you read about Abraham and, and the great things God accomplished through him, as you, as you read about um, Isaac and Jacob and the great prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah, John the Baptist. Who is the common denominator? It's the Lord, isn't it? And that's why I'm so keen to remind you when we study these Old Testament biographical passages that the Bible is not about these men. The Bible is about the God 
that they, stir, they serve. This is his story. And this is God's glory on display in choosing an unlikely person to glorify himself. God is the common denominator. Well, Joshua was God's man, but he lived a brief time, long life compared to others. He lived to be 110, but brief in the sense of eternal redemptive history. And just like all of us, he was on the scene but a brief time, but he was submissive to the Lord, and therefore the Lord did great things through him. And he did that, fourthly, through his miracle. God's miracle, beginning verse 8. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Now that seems like an odd command. Take the ark, and you can look out, you can tell the water's deep. And he says, tell these men to take the ark and go stand in the middle of the river. And they did. And then the scripture says, then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from among you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. Now mark that. We're going to come back to that. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So he says, here's what the Lord's going to do. To show you that all of his promises are going to happen. He is going to dispossess these seven mighty nations from before you. That as soon as the first priest who's carrying the front of the ark, as soon as the sole of his feet touches the edge of the Jordan, guess what's going to happen? The water's going to stop. It's going to heap up, as it were, an invisible dam on the waters that's flowing south from the north. It's just going to stop and pool up. And then the water that was flowing south is going to continue on, and it's going to leave a dry riverbed. And those men carrying the ark are to stand there in the middle of the river until all two million of the Israelites cross over on dry land. That is a miracle indeed. But it, it bears a striking resemblance to another miracle, doesn't it? Do you remember the first miracle after the ten plagues that God did through Moses? Wasn't it the crossing of the Red Sea? They get to this seemingly impenetrable obstacle to their freedom, the Red Sea. And Moses is there and the people are looking to him and they think they're all about to die. The pursuing armies of Pharaoh are coming in their chariots. The dust is blowing. And Moses holds out his staff. And this time on both sides the water parts. And on dry land those two million cross over safely to the other side. And here's Joshua, and Moses is not around anymore. Moses is dead. And he's leading the people. They're looking to him for leadership. We've come this far. But here's this obstacle to the promised land. But God says, Joshua, I'm going to be with you just as I was with Moses. And he showed that by once again causing them to walk over on dry land. There are actually three times in the Old Testament at least where we see this miracle in the Jordan River. 
uh, or the crossing over on dry land. One is, as I said, the Red Sea with Moses. The other is here in Joshua 3. And the third is when Elijah the prophet came to the end of his life, as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 2. Do you remember the story? Elisha had been the protege of the great prophet Elijah. And Elijah is about to be translated into heaven. Remember the Lord came in a chariot of fire and swept him up to heaven. And it was revealed to Elijah and Elisha and every true prophet of God in Israel about what was going to happen. And so they began to walk. And they got to Bethel. And Elijah said to Elisha, you wait here, I'm going to go on. But Elisha said, no indeed. I'm your servant. You're not going anywhere without me. And uh, they kept walking and they come to the next town. And there were some prophets there. And they pulled Elisha aside and said, hey, you do know today's the day that your master's going to heaven. He said, yeah, I know. Don't say a word. And they kept walking. And he kept trying to say, you stay here. I'm going on. They get to the Jordan River. And Elijah takes his coat, his mantle, and he folds it up like a towel. And he slaps the Jordan River. And it parts. And he and Elisha cross over on dry land. And that is where God took him to heaven. And Elisha was wondering, my master's not here anymore. I'm following in the footsteps of a legend. People are going to be looking to me. How do I know that God is with me? And he said, I won't do it, Lord, unless you give me a double portion of the power of Elijah. He didn't know whether he had it or not. But before he went to heaven, Elijah had handed that mantle to Elisha. We have that in our vernacular, handing the mantle of leadership to someone else. And he gives him the mantle. And, and he turns around, he's headed back to Bethel, and he comes again to the Jordan River. And you know what he does? He folds that mantle in half and he slaps the water. And the water's part. And he knows the Lord's with me too. That's what happened to, to Joshua. He remembered Moses, he was there. Front row seat when God defeated the armies that came out against them in the wilderness. He was there as Moses had his hands raised by Aaron and Hur. He was the one we saw last week with Moses who went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law. He saw Moses' face glowing as he came down. He was there when the Red Sea parted. Now he needs to know that the same God that was with Moses is with him. And dear friends, the, the common denominator is the Lord. And here's what we need to be reminded of today. The same God that parted the Red Sea and the Jordan River lives within us. He's not changed a bit. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we want to see the Lord do great things through this church, we have to do as they did. And that leads me to my fifth and final point, and that is God's memorial. Go back to verse 12. Verse 12 says, Now then take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. Now I won't take the time to go over a few chapters to see why he did that. I'll just tell you. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into that dry riverbed and pick twelve stones. One from each tribe. And then I want you to pile those stones up in a pile as a memorial. Remember what he told them? Get ready to move because you've never come this way before. But he knew over the years the subsequent generations would. 
And he wanted every time they passed by that point to remember what the Lord had done that day. Isn't that why we have the ordinance of the Lord's Supper? As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. That's why I wear a wedding ring. I, I want to remind myself every day of the commitments that, that I made because why? We forget, don't we? The Apostle Peter came to the end of his life and he was writing one of his epistles and he said, I'm determined to remind you of what you already know. And I've been your pastor now for 13 years, hard to believe. And sometimes I think, well, what can I tell them that I haven't already told them? Nothing. But you know what? I have a great advantage. You forget. <laughs> and so do I. And so I just keep telling you the same things over and over because we forget. And that's why God had them build that memorial stone. That every time they passed, they would tell that story of that day when they crossed over on, on dry land. In conclusion, dear friends, there are four things that God wants us to do as a result of hearing this text today. One is to consecrate ourselves. To separate ourselves from sin. If we really want to be used by God to lead a revival in this city and in this state and in this nation, we have to separate ourselves from sin. We have to stop loving what the world loves. We have to start loving the things of God. And then secondly, we have to follow his leadership. No, we don't need a visible manifestation of a box to remind us that God is in our presence. We just need to communicate with him every day through the indwelling presence of the Spirit. And then we need to expect him to do great things among us. And when he does, we need to tell our children about it. See, I imagine when Moses was in his prime, it rarely cost the mind of Joshua that one of these days Moses isn't going to be here. He, he came to depend so heavily, and then suddenly Moses is gone, and the responsibility falls on him. Let me remind all of us of something, especially parents. There's coming a day very soon where you're not going to be there to make your children's decisions for you. And so when the Lord does something great among you, you need to remember that. And you need to tell that story over and over and over to build within them the knowledge that the God they serve has never changed. And even though you're not there with them physically to tell them what to do, the God that you serve is the God that they serve. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Build some memorial stones in your life. Those stories of, of when the Lord was especially gracious. When He saved you is the first story you need to tell. Tell your testimony to your children. Tell them about times in your lives where you, you desperately needed Him and He delivered. Tell them about times when something happened that only can be explained that He did it. And then when you come to the end of your life, you can uh, have the knowledge that you have passed that legacy of faith and truth to that next person. You're Elisha. You're Joshua. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for uh, your word. And Father, I, I see in the Old Testament narrative how the common denominator is you. You never change. People are born and they live, they sin, they're forgiven, they die. 
and a new generation takes their place. That's been happening, Father, since Adam and Eve. But you've never changed. Your eternal plan of redemption has not wavered. And so, Father, every person in this room who has a heartbeat now has an opportunity to submit to your Lordship. And Father, I pray for every born-again believer, every member of First Baptist Church, that we would have the desire to consecrate ourselves, to separate ourselves from sin, and then, Father, to submit to your leadership and your guidance through the Holy Spirit as revealed in your inerrant word. And then, Father, we pray that we would live with a state of expectation that you're going to do great things among us. And when that happens, Lord, we'll give you all the glory and praise. We'll tell our children and grandchildren about it. So they also would put their faith and trust in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.